There's an old, old joke, and I don't know if I've used it before, you know, getting close to nine years, you kind of forget what you use, but uh, if you've heard it before, just pretend like you haven't, okay? Can we do that? A couple have been happily married for 60 years. He had never forgotten her birthday and all of their years together. However, as he was reading his morning paper over that extra cup of coffee, he suddenly glanced at the date on the newspaper and remembered that today was her birthday. He looked across the table to see if she had remembered, and evidently she too had forgotten. Sitting there for the next few minutes, their 60 years together passed through his mind. What a fine wife she had been through all these years. She was as sweet and lovely as she was on the day of their wedding day. The only difference was that she had become a little bit hard of hearing over the years. So in order to display his appreciation and his love for her on her birthday, he leaned in her direction over his second cup of coffee and he yelled loud enough for her to hear, Wife, I'm proud of you. She sat straight up in her chair, leaned forward, her eyes danced with anger, and she yelled, that's nothing, I'm tired of you too. Sixty years together. How can two people live together 60 years and stay married to one another? What would cause two people to stay together for that length of a period of time, but On the other side of that coin, what is it that would cause two people to walk out of the aisle and to out into the world in which they are hoping to establish their marriage, only to, within the first year or two, experience a crisis that somehow diminishes the relationship to the point where later on they wind up no longer together and in a court of law, they're divorced. What is it that causes a person to walk down an aisle and to publicly declare his faith in Jesus and answering that call commits his life to following in the footsteps of Christ to become a fully devoted Christ follower only to walk out of the doors of the church and within maybe the first year or two or three wind up completely discouraged, despondent, defeated in his faith or her faith and no longer to be seen in the fellowship of the church as they have reverted back to their own life. I believe the answer to those two questions is one of the same. It's called expectations. For who of us are married had the right kind of expectations that married life would bring? I mean, we're going to have a lot of conversations this afternoon, I know, but let me encourage you to if you want to, if you dare to do this, go home this afternoon and say, what did you expect of me when we got married? What did you expect of our marriage when we became married? And have I lived up to all of your expectations? Are you brave enough to do that? Chances are the reason why many people fail in marriage and don't make it to 60 years as this couple in our introduction is because they, they walk out of the, of the church and into the real world, and what they expected out of that relationship has never been fulfilled. And as a result of that lack of fulfillment, they become discouraged and disappointed and defeated and eventually wind up in a court of law only to divorce and to sever the relationship. There have been many, like marriage, who have committed their lives to Christ only to say a simple prayer without fully understanding the expectations that are required of them by Jesus himself of what it 
requires to completely follow Jesus. Many are not explained what those expectations are. Many come with their own set of expectations. And and as a result of that, when they go out to live their lives for the Lord, the expectations that they had and what it was going to do for them or bring into their lives or what they were going to gain as a result of following Jesus, he just didn't live up to the expectations that they had. Discouragement sets in. Defeat becomes a reality. And pretty soon, spiritual death results and, and they just sort of walk out and never then return back into that relationship that they once had when they came to faith in Christ because those expectations they had in Jesus were just not simply met. I think the reality is that most of us come into marriage and into our relationship with Jesus with, a, with our own set of expectations. The disciples that Jesus is addressing in Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 21 through verse 27 today, are disciples who, like us, have a set of expectations about who Jesus is and what they are going to benefit in following him. And Jesus in this passage gives them and us a crystal clear understanding of what those expectations are when we follow Christ. He wants his disciples then and today to clearly understand, to see exactly what it is that is expected of them and us when we follow Jesus. And I'm convinced we as a church sometimes do a disservice to people when we lead them into a simple prayer of committing their lives to Christ. We dunk them in a baptistry, put them on the rolls of our churches, only to later when they discover what the expectations are, they're no longer to be seen. Because Christ has an expectation for those of us who seek to follow him. And what are the disciples' expectations from Christ in this passage, not only then, but here today? Let's take a look at at the four expectations clearly laid out for us in this passage. Expectation number one. To meet Christ's expectations, I must change my expectations. To meet Christ's expectations, I must change my expectations for his expectations of me. It is not I who come to Christ with expectations, demanding and expecting to him to meet my expectations. It is I, when I come to Christ, I lay my expectations on the altar, and I take upon myself his expectations of what he expects from me and of me as a Christ follower. In verse 21, we see this important passage. Let's just read it real quickly. For that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This passage that we're reading today follows a beautiful passage where Jesus is with his disciples and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And well, then, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter steps up to the plate, Mr. Eager Simon Peter, you know, always putting his, mouth, his foot in his mouth from time to time, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time and, and doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And, and, and it's always, you know, sort of much like most of us, you know, very eager to please. And, and, and he's the kind of disciple that doesn't just follow in the footsteps of Jesus. He's, in the, he's on the heels of Jesus. I mean, he, he doesn't follow at a distance. He's so eager that he just wants to please Christ. And on this particular occasion, prior to this passage, he does exactly that. He declares with incredible boldness, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus applauds him, 
salutes him and tells him that in future responsibilities of the church, upon you, Simon Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. Jesus goes, man, that's, that's awesome. And he's sort of, you know, he's feeling pretty good about himself. This is one time, man, he had a home run. And, and, and now, all of a sudden, Jesus is about to make a statement. And this statement is about to turn his world upside down. He's going to hero to zero instantly. But following that incredible declaration, it says, from that time forward. This is a transition in the message and the ministry of Jesus with his disciples and those who would be disciples. Where he begins in Matthew 16, verse 21, and 10 other times, I believe, in the book of Matthew, where he lines out and lays before them not only the expectations of a disciple, but what they can expect of him and from him as he leads them. Where are you going, Jesus? We are your disciples. We are following in your footsteps. We are following at your heels. And Jesus, from this time forward, begins now to explain to his disciples exactly who he is and where he is headed. It's important because, you see, disciples follow their leader. And he's saying to them, this is where I am going. So if I am leading this way myself, this is where you too are headed. He's setting the course. He's setting the stage. He's preparing the table to explain to them where he's going so he can then help them understand where they are going. From this time forward, he begins to explain to his disciples that he must go where? To Jerusalem. Up until now, Jesus' public ministry has been primarily around the Galilee area, in, away from Jerusalem. But he's saying to them, hey, I, I'm about to go to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. It was Jerusalem where the temple was located. It was Jerusalem where the king resided. It was Jerusalem where, where the center of the throne of the Israel's nation was located. And he's saying, I am going to Jerusalem. Their ears perked up. We're headed toward Jerusalem. Finally, Jesus is going to occupy the throne and become king. But he says to them, I'm going to Jerusalem not to be king. I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer many things. Where am I going? I'm going to Jerusalem. Why am I going there? To suffer many things. This was, this was not a pleasant thing for them to hear. You see, they didn't expect their Messiah to be headed toward Jerusalem to suffer. They thought he would go to Jerusalem to reign and to rule on the seat of the throne of David and liberate Israel from their captivity of the Romans and restore Israel back to the past glory that it once had. Going to Jerusalem to suffer many things. Who's going to bring about? Who's going to cause this suffering? Well, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes are the ones who are going to bring about this suffering. These are the religious elite. This is the political power in Jerusalem. He's going to be captured and tried and convicted and sentenced to die. We know that. Jesus is not being uh, covering that much detail here. He's leaving some things sort of open-ended. He's not giving them as much detail as we have. But they are to understand that as he makes his way to Jerusalem to suffer, the people that are going to do that are the religious leaders and the politicians are going to find him guilty and he's going to suffer. And what is the end result of this suffering? He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to physically die. 
But don't you worry. I'm not going to stay dead very long because on the third day, I will be raised. That word raised is a beautiful word. It doesn't mean that Jesus is going to raise himself. It means that he's going to be raised. He means that God the Father is going to raise his son from the dead and he will be dead, but he will come alive again. This is the first time they have heard this incredible message. Now, as we think about expectations, I've already alluded to the fact that the disciples had the expectation that when they heard the call and committed to follow Christ and finally agreed, he is the Messiah, I understand that, I believe that, he is the promised Messiah, they believed, as in their culture, that when the Messiah come, he would set up his reign in Jerusalem, rule on the throne, liberate them, and they then would be restored back to their, their, their past glory. These disciples didn't fully understand where he was headed and what was about to happen to him. In other words, what Jesus is doing here at this particular point in his ministry, now that they have finally understood and accepted that he's the Messiah, he's telling them that's not what is about to happen. He's saying to them, I want you from now on, as I teach you, as I instruct you, as I explain to you where I'm going, I want you to change your expectations of me and where I am going. I don't know about you, but that says to me that most of us, if not many of us, when we come to faith in Christ, we need to change our expectations of who he is to who he says that he is. I think that's the rub today. There are many people who don't want to accept accept at face value who Jesus said he was, but he is and he was the son of God and he is and he was The Christ, he was the Messiah. It is us who change our expectations and not only who he is because we accept what he says he is, not what we want him to be, but we also accept where he is going and what he is doing not only in his life but as we follow him. We come honestly with a set of expectations about what Jesus is going to do for me, not what I'm going to do for him. And it's almost as if sometimes in this this what I call secular church today. It's a health, wealth, prosperity gospel, isn't it? That if I come to faith in Jesus, this is all that I receive. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. It's about receiving. But I receive when I follow and when I give. We're going to look at that in a minute. It's, it's, a, it's, 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 lo, it's, it's, it's dying to my expectations and coming to Christ and asking him, Lord, what are your expectations? What do you expect of me? Not, not what I expect of you. And I think that's the rub with many Christians today and why many so, get so discouraged and disappointed and so spiritually defeated in Jesus. Because as soon as they go out into the world and they begin to realize that, that everything's not going to be great or hunky-dory or wonderful or fantastic, there are going to be trials and tribulations and troubles and hardships and difficulties and all of those things. This is not what I signed up for. It's kind of like marriage, isn't it? Come on. Marriage is about dying to yourself. It's about accepting expectations that are reality. I mean, Two people, when they get married, you know, the, 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 the husband comes with expectation, what it's going to be like. The wife comes with expectation. And sometimes those expectations are not one and the same, are they? And after the I do's, you begin to wonder whose expectations are going to survive. 
And in some relationships, there's a battle that ensues as to whose expectations are going to rise to the top and who's going to die to their expectations. In our relationship with Jesus, it's exactly the same. When we're baptized and presented to the church and we walk out, we, we expect Jesus to do a lot of things. And, and I think that's why we have thousands of members here, but maybe about 1,000 to 1,200 to attend on a monthly basis. Not every Sunday, but on a monthly basis. Why is that? Because he's let me down. He's disappointed me. Well, how can Jesus disappoint you? How can following Jesus be disappointing? It's because your expectations are different than his. And it's not him who needs to change his expectations. It's me who needs to change my expectations to meet and to measure up to his expectations. We come empty-handed with expectations that are not ours, but that are his. So in meeting Christ's expectations, like the disciples then, he's saying we must change our expectations to his. Number two, we must combat natural reactions when we finally come to terms with what his expectations are. You know, th this, is, this is difficult as well because I think sometimes when we fully understand what Jesus' expectations are of us, we react wrongly. We react in the natural. We, we react in the carnal. We, we react fleshly. We react selfishly. And here's where Peter is going to do exactly what I think many times we do. If we're honest with ourselves, we, we too, like Simon Peter, have been guilty of this very same thing. Notice in the text, verse 22, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Simon Peter, who just earlier you know, said this incredible thing, was applauded by Christ, and was promoted responsibility in the future, is now taking Jesus aside, following the words of Jesus. And I'm not sure exactly, we're not clear exactly how this happened. Jesus, you know, makes this declaration with the 12 who are there, and maybe more than the 12. And I'm not sure how Simon, Simon Peter does it, but he, he must have grabbed Jesus, you know, kind of on the shoulder and, and began to kind of bring him aside. And they're walking shoulder to shoulder, sort of away from the other disciples, so that maybe they... They're not going to be able to hear what he's about to say. You ever that experience when you're being corrected by your parents? Or someone, they kind of take you aside and say, let me, let me straighten you out. I don't want the others to hear what I'm about to say to you, but you're headed the wrong direction. You're doing the wrong thing. And so he sort of grabs Jesus by the side, and, and he takes him. It's, it's not literally by force, but it's, it's something that he initiates. He puts his arm around, and he takes him aside from the other disciples and notice he begins to rebuke him. This word rebuke is a strong word. It means that he's not really angry, but he's trying to correct Christ. He's speaking to Jesus in a way that he wants to basically be the, the one who is telling Jesus how he needs to act, what he needs to do, what he needs to become. He's rebuking him. It's almost... It's almost as if he's, 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 he himself is becoming Jesus talking to a disciple. You know, you're, you're not going to do this. This is a strong thing. And he says to him, far be it from you, Lord. This word far be it almost is a word in the original language that, that says, have mercy. Uh, you're, you're, you're a God of mercy and you're a God of grace. So, Based upon your mercy and your grace, far be it from you, Lord, you are Lord. 
interesting that he addresses Christ as Lord, but Jesus at this moment, at this point in this encounter, is nothing but Lord. He is not Lord. It is Simon Peter who is becoming Lord over Jesus, not Jesus over Simon Peter. And though he addresses him and calls him Lord, Christ is not Lord. You ever known anybody who's done that? Have you ever been in a relationship with Christ where you call him Lord, but he's not really Lord? He's not really calling the shots. He's not telling you where to go, what to do, and what to become. It's you who's trying to do that, but you're calling him Lord the whole time, but you're doing what you want to do. He's calling him Lord, but he's saying, wait a minute. I know you're the Lord, but I have these expectations of you, Jesus. You're not living up to. You're not fulfilling my expectations of you. And he says to Christ, he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. That word never is a double negative, meaning absolutely under any circumstances will I allow or will this ever happen. It can never happen. Never, 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 absolutely never happen. Verse 23, but he, Jesus, turns to Simon Peter and said, they're walking side by side, I think, and then Jesus stops and turns, and now they're face to face. I'm not sure how far away they got from the other disciples, but Jesus turns, and he's looking Simon Peter in the face, face to face, and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. What's he doing here? He's saying, Simon Peter, you are being an instrument of the devil. He's not calling Simon Peter the devil. Simon Peter has accepted the call, responded to the call, and committed to be a disciple of Jesus. But he's saying to Simon Peter, you are being an instrument of Satan. You're being a tool of the enemy who has been trying from the very onset to keep me from following the path of following in the, the call and being obedient to God. You are being an instrument of Satan that is trying to prevent me from doing the will of God. And then he says, for you are not setting your mind, for he said, you are a hindrance to me. Let's back up. You are a hindrance to me. That word hindrance is a word that means that you are trying to prevent me from being obedient to the Lord, to the Father, to God. You are being a hindrance. You are not only an instrument of the devil, but you are intentionally trying to keep me and prevent me from doing the will of my Father. And aren't you glad that he didn't listen to Simon Peter's words, much less the temptations that came from the enemy, because had he done that, he would have not fulfilled the purpose for which he was sent, and you and I would not be celebrating today what, what we celebrate today, and we would be lost and hopeless and eternally bound to hell because of our sin. You are trying to be a hindrance to me. You know, there are people in our lives, I'm convinced, who think they're trying to help us, but they're a hindrance. And he's saying, you're an instrument, Simon Peter, of the devil. You're instructing me to sin. You are trying to prevent me from being obedient to God. But notice the text, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Your insight, Simon Peter, is man's insight, not God's. You are setting your mind on the things that are carnal, on the things that are fleshly, on the things that are natural, not on the supernatural, not on the spiritual. 
This is a common natural reaction. We, we shouldn't get really, really critical of Simon Peter because how many times have we done that ourselves in our relationship with God? He's come to us and set clear expectations of what he desires in our lives, of what it takes for us to follow Jesus. And instead of changing our expectation to his, we reacted in the natural and said, you know what, God, that's just too much. That is too far. I, I don't really want to, can, can we not do this instead of this? And all along we are reacting naturally because in the natural, in our human thinking, with our own recourse, without the spiritual insight that we need, we often react and respond as we resist the very thing that God wants to bring into our lives. And Simon Peter is doing that. So we must understand that if we're going to measure up to Christ's expectations, we must not only change our expectations to his, but we must combat these natural reactions that we have in resisting the very thing that Christ wants to bring into our lives and the places where he wants to lead us. It isn't always the natural that it, it, well, let me, let me put it this way. It's not always natural for us to follow where he leads. We must follow him not in the man's way, the selfish, carnal, fleshly way of thinking, but we must think spiritually. That's why the Apostle Paul said we must develop the mind of Christ, to think as he thinks and to reflect as he reflects and to understand more fully what, what it means to think spiritually, not in the flesh or carnally. Because the reality is, in the natural, what Christ asks us to do doesn't seem reasonable, does it? It goes against everything that the natural self wants to do. It goes against my own list of expectations that I have for my life and where my life needs to go and what it needs to accomplish and what I want to achieve. Instead of what he wants to accomplish, what he wants to achieve in me as I follow him. So you must combat these natural reactions that resist God in leading you where he wants you to go. Number three, we must then commit to his expectations. Once I change my expectation to him and then begin to combat these natural reactions and resistance to what he wants to do, I must commit to his expectations. There's a time in which I need to sort of step over the line and say, all right, Lord, I'm going to embrace your expectations for my life. There needs to be a committal on that. And Jesus is saying in this passage that, that many then and many today have a desire to follow Jesus on their terms. Christ, I will follow you as long as on my terms. I will follow you as long as you lead me where I want to go, as long as I say what I want to say and, and I get to do what I want to do. But if you lead me anywhere where I don't want to go to say anything I don't want to say or to become anything I don't want to become, then, then, then it's off. I'm just not going there because that, that's not what I have envisioned for my life. These are not my expectations. We must not only lay ours on the table and surrender to our own expectations and, and battle these, combat these, these, these natural reactions to what Christ has for us, but we must make a commitment. He says, then Jesus told his disciples. It's almost as if Jesus is turning away from Simon Peter and now he's addressing the others. He wants to make sure that this is a message that not only Simon hears, but everyone else hears. And I wonder, as, as Simon tried to bring Jesus away from the others so they wouldn't hear it, I'm thinking maybe they heard it as well. So Jesus turns now and dresses not only Simon Peter, but he dresses all of his disciples who are there. And he uses the word if. That is a conditional word. 
It is what I believe the largest two-letter word in our English vocabulary. If, if anyone, if everyone, anyone, there's no, no, no limitations to who this is. If anyone anywhere would want to come after me, if anyone anywhere hears the call and answers the call to be a disciple, there are three conditions that I have for your life. Three. What are they? Number one, to live selfishly. I need to live selfishly. Right? To live for myself. Is that what he's saying? Or to live selflessly. He said, let him deny himself. We are not to live selfishly, but we are to live selflessly. To live selflessly, to live dying to self. He said we must deny himself. He, we must deny oneself. This he must, let him deny himself, is a he must deny himself. It is a command. It is not an option. It is not democratic. It is him telling us if anyone, anywhere, hears the call and answers the call to discipleship and wants to follow me, you must absolutely unconditionally deny oneself. That meaning means that you must die to self. We have this little thing within us before we came to Christ called self, don't we? And self wants what self wants. And self rises up and demands what self desires. And he's saying if we are to follow Christ, we are to die to self. And just because we come to faith in Christ and accept him as our Savior doesn't mean self dies. I mean, I mean, we as Christians sometimes can be the most selfish individuals in the world. If we're not careful, a little, little self rises to the throne and he pushes Jesus off the throne of our lives and he can take over temporarily if we're not careful. And we've got to continually, constantly die to self. Don't, don't let self reign and rule your life because self will naturally say, no, God, I don't want that. No, Jesus, I won't follow you. We must die to oneself. Notice he said, and, that word and is also, we must also take up his cross. Notice the word take is to carry. It means to actually pick it up. You must pick it up. You must walk over and pick up. You must carry. You must lift up his own cross. His is a personal pronoun, meaning individually you have a cross, that you must bear a cross that you must carry when you follow Christ. And we sometimes, when we look at the cross, we fail to understand exactly the significance and the meaning of the words of Jesus in the context of this passage. When they heard the word cross, they understood what it meant. It meant that they were to be martyrs for Jesus. It meant that they were to walk that Via della Rosa and eventually become martyrs. They would die for Christ, literally be sacrificed. It is not only a selfless life, it is a sacrificial life. We must be willing to sacrifice our own lives. We have a tendency to think, well, a cross, you know, it's kind of like that girl who, who wanted to, you know, a little emblem on, and, and we wear that as Christians, you know, around our neck, and we have little crosses. Anybody have one of those? And she went into a jewelry store and she said, I'd like a little emblem, a little cross, put on my chain. And he said, he asked, do you want a little cross with or without a little Jesus on it? You know, we, we wear these crosses and we wear them with pride. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, but, but our crosses are not that small that we carry. 
their crosses, their personal crosses. And each one of us has been purposed to carry his or her own cross. It means that this cross is going to be a sacrificial cross. It's going to demand sacrifice. And what that means for each of us personally and individually is different from one to the other. But we must be willing that no matter where he leads, no matter what he asks, we are willing to sacrifice even our own lives in order to follow Jesus. And I'm convinced in the next couple of decades, if not sooner, there will be martyrs in the United States of America for following Jesus. We have more people right now dying because of their Christianity, because of their faith in Christ, than I'm convinced at any other time in the history of the church. More dying today for Christ than even in the persecution that happened in Rome where they tried to obliterate Christianity. We have a tendency to think that martyrdom is something in the past, something in the history books, something that happened to the church way back then. We live in America. We're free. But I'm going to tell you something. There's a lot of people right now, and it's, it's finally, I believe finally, it is time for, for our United States of America to finally admit that there's genocide going on to, to, to obliterate Christianity from the face of the earth. It's happening right now in other parts of the world. And I think one of these days it's going to be here. And you and I will have to stand up. And we're going to have to be willing to literally die to be a martyr for the cause of Christ. Whatever suffering comes in, in, in following Jesus, I embrace it. But notice he said, and follow me. This is complete submissiveness on our part. To be submissive. This word here is the present imperative. It means to keep on following. It means that I keep on following it regardless of what, what comes or what doesn't come. I never give up. I never throw in the towel. I never quit. I continue. I persist. I am an ongoing follower of Jesus from the beginning to the end of my life. I faithfully follow him wherever he leads, wherever he sends, whatever he says, whatever he wants to change. Yes, Lord. And we follow him to the bitter end, to the very end, to the end of the line, until we cross the finish line, and he either calls us home or he returns in all of his glory. We are committed to measuring up, to meeting, and to following his expectations, to following in his lordship, in his steps, doing what he says to do, going where he says to go, giving what he says to give, becoming what he asks us to become. That's what we're committed to. Unquestioned loyalty and obedience. But once we commit to that, there's an interesting fourth and final point that we must also concentrate on the return. You know, the beauty about all this is that there's, there's, a, there's a yield. There's a dividend. There's a return on the investment. You invest your life in following Christ, there's a reciprocal aspect about what we receive when we follow Jesus. Notice what he says to his disciples. And Jesus gives three arguments here to the returns for those who are willing 100% to, to give up their expectations for his expectations, to giving, to going, and to doing wherever he leads. It's going to be costly. It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost your life. But let me tell you something. If you're willing to do that, here's the return on your investment. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, as we concentrate on the return, it produces an eternal 
return. There's, there's an eternal reward that is, reset, that, is, that is received by those who surrender their all to Christ. He says, whoever would save his life. This is almost like a paradox. If you want to save your life, lose it. Because in losing it, you will save it. You know, there's a natural tendency, I think, when we stand at, at, the, at the, the place of commitment and we are challenged or called or asked to give up our everything for the Lord is to protect, it's to preserve, it's to, it's to guard. Why? Because we, we just can't afford that. I can't go there. I can't do that. I can't. I, I can't. I, I, I want to protect what I got. Because I think in doing that, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to give me life. And he says, no, let it go. Because when you let it go, that's when you live. Because if you seek to protect, you don't really live. It's almost a paradox. You lose it, you gain it. But if you keep it, you lose it. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And a lot of times we hold on to things because we think, that it, we think that it somehow enhances our life. And the life, many, many have argued over what this, this word life actually means. Does it mean eternal life or abundant life? I think, yes, it means both, abundant life and eternal life. Because the life that we find in Jesus is not only the abundant life, but is also an eternal life. If you want to live an abundant life in this life, and if you want to live eternally, then you die to self. And in doing so, you find life. Because it's in serving him and yielding to him that we find abundant life and eventually eternal life. Not only does it produce eternal life, but it prioritizes my investments. For he says in verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What if, Jesus is kind of just throwing this out there in this argument, what if you could gain the whole world world. Now, I'm not just talking about a piece of the pie. I'm talking about you can invest your life to the degree where you were owner of the world, the whole world. You were that wealthy and that powerful that you owned everything in the world. You, you had your life's pursuit to do that. Somebody said, well, I wouldn't have problems with finances, would you? You wouldn't have to worry about your bills, would you? I had a friend of mine one time said, I'd rather know people who have money than have money because people who have money have to worry about the money they have and people who know people who have money don't worry about it like the people who have it. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that we see about one of the guys that's running for president right now. He's a billionaire. And people are impressed by that. Because you see, I think there's a lot of Americans today who have bought into the lie that, that that's success. If I could just become a billionaire, my problems would be solved. And they spend their whole lives in pursuit of that. If I could just attain the whole world, imagine if you could, if you could possess the whole world, but you lose your soul in the process. Would that be worth it? I mean, in comparison, he's saying where you're going to spend most of your time, you're going to spend maybe 70, 80, if you're lucky, 90 years in this life, but you're going to spend eternity in heaven or hell, but you have spent your whole life in the pursuit of all of this to forfeit this. But when you think about this, this actually is greater 
than this. Because even if you were to get all of this and you think that's great, this is greater than that. So why would you spend all your time investing in this, which is temporary, it's earthly, it doesn't last forever, when you, when you should spend all your time in this? So where should you invest your time? Think about it. Where the greatest return and the greatest yield is in your investment, it stands the reason that investing in eternity is far better and far outweighs the present life that we could enjoy. And even enjoying what we consider to be this present life is nothing in comparison to the life that is found in Christ. And then lastly, notice it prepares for accountability. He says in verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. There's a day of reckoning. Take a look at the word, and you might want to circle it in your Bible. It's the word reward or repay. It's one of the same. There's a reward that one day is coming. For those of us who are willing to invest in eternity and give our all for Christ, there's this incredible reward that is coming. And one of these days, the trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise. And those of us who remain will be caught up together in the clouds and we will be forever with the Lord. And on that day of reckoning, on that day of accountability, the score will be settled. And those of us who gave it all up for following Jesus will be rewarded. It'll all be worthwhile. We will finally recognize and realize that what we gave up, how we served, and all the suffering and all the sacrifice and all of the self-denial that we gave in following Jesus is now going to be repaid. It's going to be rewarded. And he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now come and receive your reward. And what an incredible day that's going to be. He's reminding his disciples as he reminds us, there is a day of reckoning in which the score will be settled. And the score will be settled not as man thinks. He with the most toys does not win in the end. But a he who knows Christ in the end wins. Not only does this person enjoy the abundant life, but he receives or she receives the eternal life that's found through faith in Christ. We will be rewarded. I was reminded today as we were coming in. Pat and I were talking about what her lesson is and what my lesson is and how we were going to be talking about these things. And he was telling me about, about her conversation with our eldest son. And it helped me come to a conclusion here in this service in our time together today. You know, it's interesting that we think that what we offer to God is really big. You know what I'm talking about? We do something for him and we bring it to him. And as we bring it to him, we want him to, to applaud our effort and to applaud our sacrifice and to applaud our service. And he does. But when we bring it to him and we offer it to him and show him what we've done when we do that, it's kind of like when our children do their little artwork and they do the best they can. And we look at it and we see it, it it's, it's not really that great. Really? We know we, we could do better, but we go. I have these things in my office. They're, they're on my wall. Uh, can you get a camera close up here? I don't know if you can see it. 
This, this Avery and Addie, I have to use both. I was just going to use one, but I have two sets of twins. And, and they were here a couple of years ago when they were much smaller. And, and I have them on the wall in my office. I am proud of these. I display them with incredible pride because they're my granddaughters. Now, if you were to look at this and examine it with a critical eye, they're way outside the lines. I mean, one of the guys has blue hair, and one has green feet, and the other has red feet. From, a, from a, an artist's standpoint, it, it's not that great. But when they offered it to me and gave it to me to put in my office, what do I do as a grandfather? Dude, you better be, I'm going to display it. I'm going to applaud them. I'm going to build them up and tell them, boy, man, that is awesome, right? My point is, is not to demean what we give God at all. Because I know when we, when we give God our best sacrifice and we give him our best service and we think that we're something special, I think God just sort of laughs at us. Really? Don't you think? <laughs> he doesn't do it out loud because he didn't want to hear it. You know, I, I could do a lot better than this, and I have done better than this. And you think this is really great, and, and it is great. But as we grow and mature, I have other artwork in, at home on the refrigerator that's much better than this. As I slowly, gradually mature and grow... They're more inside the lines, and their artwork gets better. But it's still not something that's going to display it in Paris, France, and one of the walls. I'm not trying to demean what you sacrificially give to God. But I don't think God's really all that impressed with what we sacrifice for him and compared to what he sacrificed for us. When we celebrate this day is Palm Sunday, and in a couple of days we're going to celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus. The Son of God, perfect, sinless, God in the flesh, came down and was born of a virgin named Mary, lived this life for 33 and a half years. Show us the path of discipleship, to die on a cross. For sins he didn't commit. A sinless God became sin for us so that we then might be reconciled with God through faith in him. How can we, in light of all that he gave, give anything less than our best? Even though our best would never measure up to his best? Ever. I don't care how much you give. It'll never measure up, and yet we, like Christ, are to follow in his footsteps, and we are to carry our cross because he was willing to carry his cross for us. And aren't you glad? Let's pray.